Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. So when's the last time you checked your credit scores? Because your scores may change more often than you think, and you should know what they are now and not from a year ago. Credit Karma is here to help out. The best thing? Credit Karma is always free and there's no catch. No credit card needed. Go to creditkarma.com or download the Credit Karma app now. That's creditkarma.com, C-R-E-D-I-T-K-A-R-M-A, Dot com. We love Credit Karma. Check out the site and download the Credit Karma app now. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and happy new year. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. It's 2018. How you feeling? Hopefully you're doing great. I know if you're listening to this right after it airs, you know, you're going back to work probably after a nice little vacation and it might be tough. So we thought let's give you an episode that kicks off the year right, helps you with that commute. And helps you get closer to that New Year's resolution you probably made, which is get healthier. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine you're taking a nice hot shower, you're enjoying the steam, the warmth, and then somebody flushes the toilet and it goes ice cold. What does that feel like? What's your first reaction? Look, we've all been there and we know it sucks. But what if I told you that recent science is showing cold exposure similar to that in an ice cold shower 
is beneficial for your health. This week on the podcast, we are going to be covering a topic that is getting noticed throughout the world. We're going to be talking about what's called the Wim Hof Method. Now, you might have heard of Wim Hof, and for those of you that know who Wim is, you will enjoy this episode. For those of you that don't know who Wim is, you will enjoy this episode. And no, we're not interviewing Wim. In fact, I specifically sought out our guest this week because he's not Wim, and he was skeptical of the Wim Hof method. Let me explain. Wim Hof is this kind of daredevil type person commonly nicknamed the Iceman for his ability to withstand extreme cold. Wim Hof holds 26 world records, including a world record for longest ice bath. He attributes this ability to cold exposure, meditation, and a breathing technique. You combine this cold exposure, meditation, and breathing techniques, and you have the Wim Hof method. Wim claims that by utilizing his technique, we can tap into our autonomic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system that is supposed to work automatically without our input. So to think we can tap into that and actually control it cognitively would be revolutionary. He also believes that through his method, you can control your immune system. You can help with autoimmune diseases and you can even lose weight by managing your metabolism. I know, I know it sounds too good to be true. And that's why I was skeptical. That's why I wanted to have on our guest this week, Scott Carney. He was the ultimate skeptic of the Wim Hof method. And he has taken pride over his journalistic career in debunking many self-proclaimed health gurus. Scott is an investigative journalist and anthropologist whose stories blend narrative nonfiction with ethnography. His reporting is taking him to some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world. And a while back, Scott decided he was going to look into various health gurus around the world to see if he could debunk their work. So he turned himself to Wim Hof, took a trip to visit him and take part in Wim's training and the results. Well, they speak for themselves. Scott put all of this information and much more into one of my favorite books of 2017 titled, What Doesn't Kill Us? How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength. One of the things this episode highlighted for me is the need to be resilient, physically resilient. What is it about a cold shower that sends figurative, and literal chills down our spine. And why can't we just do it? So that, my friends, is the topic of this episode. How do we build resilience? Does the Wim Hof method work? And what did Scott Carney, the incredible journalist, uncover in his multi-year experiment utilizing the Wim Hof method? I'm going to head into the interview. By the way, I know John and I promised you a special episode and it is coming. It just is taking us a little bit longer to edit because of the length. So if you were waiting on that, it's on the way and just consider it another way to kick off 2018. Hope you enjoy this episode with Scott Carney. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Head on over, sign up for the newsletter and reach out to us to let us know what you think. Now hop in that shower, turn it on cold and let's wake ourselves up to an amazing 2018. Enjoy the episode. 
So, well, let me, let me start here, Scott. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, uh, great to be on. It's not great. like we haven't been talking for I, I 20 know, minutes I know. beforehand. It's amazing. Here's what we were just talking about. I, I have to bring the listeners in. So you are a journalist, and I think that if I would have been smarter when I was younger and thought about what I actually wanted to do with life instead of just chasing money, I would have gone into journalism. So I think you have the best job on the planet. And then you are so kindly filling me in on, yes, you do now, but getting there was mm, life and death. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I had to get very comfortable with risk uh, very early in my career. You know, I started off you know, primarily as an investigative journalist in India, looking at sort of pretty hardcore stuff, either being in, uh, you know, war zones where the, you know, there's, there's, a, there was this war that was going on in India that no one knows about um, between the government and a communist insurgency called the Naxalites. And, you know, when I did that, I got held up by child soldiers on an assignment um, for foreign policy. At another point, I was interviewing mob bosses in Bangalore and, you know, again, surrounded by dudes with guns with, you know, and have them on tape being like, yes, I killed all these people. Bang, 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 bang. And, you know, and all sorts of things like that. Like there was, you know, my first book was about organ trafficking. So I've spent six years on the trail of people buying and selling human body parts. You know, there was some potential of, you know, running into some pretty sketchy people along the way. So, I mean, yeah, as I got started as an investigative journalist, it was, a lot of risks and and the magazines that I was working for at the time, you know, I'm a freelancer. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'd been shot or gotten in a lot of trouble, um, which there were probably eight times where, where life and death was possibly on the line, uh, you know, they would, they could probably just disavow me and be like, Oh, whatever, you know? And then they also paid you pretty bad or me pretty bad. So the beginning of my career was both incredibly exciting and very fulfilling because the work was, yeah. you know, you do this work because you want to 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 tell something fundamental about about humanity on the edge, right? Uh, and then, but you know, as a as a business plan, it's like <laughs> the worst business plan you can come up with uh, until it's not. And you know, at this point, what if, you know, what am I in? Like about fifteen years in to this job, uh, now it's pretty good. Yeah. You know, now I, I write books all the time. I get to do, you know, I get to have the same sort of freedom of what the, the sort of things I cover. And I, and I'm middle-class, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't appreciate money unless you don't have it. Like that's right. the truth. Tell us the scariest story. Like when were you most close to death? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple times, you know, one is sort of a, a boring answer is, you know, I lived in India for six years. Uh, and anytime you got on the roads there, <laughs> yeah, I was close to death. Right. I mean, like very in- intimately close to death. And I figured that if, if I die on in an assignment, it's probably going to be in something dumb like a car accident. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and if you, especially if you're going for like 20 hours on a stretch on a road with a, a driver who's falling asleep, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the risks just sort of amplify. But that's the boring uh, answer, but probably the more true answer. Right. And then the other ones are, you know. Uh, once, I, you know, we, uh, my friend Jason Meiklin and I, who's a, a researcher at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, we were covering this story about a communist insurgency in the middle of India that, um, called the Naxalites. And, and there was this weird militia called the Salwa Judum. And we got to this, uh, the, you know, deep in the heart of the state called Chhattisgarh, where, where shit was going down. Uh, you know, the, the week before we got there, Doctors Without Borders was driving through this area and they took them off their their Jeep and beat them all up. What? And 
And, you know, why would you do that to Dr. Tupworth? Yeah. I do not know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're going through the same you know, roadblock and we know we're supposed to meet with a general and, I, and I, his name now escapes me. He's dead uh, now. But at that point, he was sort of in charge. And we were like, oh, yeah, we have to go meet this general. And they're like, the general's out of town. And and little did we know, the factions are very violent. So if the dude goes out of town, the second in command who wants to be the first in command is now the dude. And we, we, we issued the wrong name. And all of a sudden, we were surrounded by uh, this sort of troop of like – you know, like 12 year olds Ugh. with Kalashnikovs and some, some sort of like more like rough looking soldiers. And then like eight people with bows and arrows. I mean, it was freaking bananas. And, uh, you know, we got there and we realized things are not good. And we're, we were telling the driver, you know, you got to go turn around. You got to go turn around. We're in trouble. And uh, I get out of the Jeep because, you know, it was looking a little hairy. And I told my my. Uh, my partner to, to start taking photos because, you know, you right. want photos of whatever's going to happen. Right. And I just sort of walk into the middle of these guys with all these guns and bows and arrows. And I'm, and I start speaking in Hindi because I happen to know Hindi. Wow. And, and I sort of did this like, Hey, white guy knows Hindi show. Yeah. 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 And, and they went, went from being like, like, you know, who knows sort of on the edge, you know, cocked guns to who the hell is this dude? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and that moment of bewilderment was still it was enough to get the jeep turned around. And be like, oh, sorry, the general's not here. Our mistake. We'll be back later. Bye. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it, it helps to know the language. Actually, I heard a really great. Uh, I don't remember if it was a podcast or I was watching TV, but they were talking about how what makes us feel like we are the same species is the language. So you can have two people from different countries, if they speak the same language instantly, they feel kind of that camaraderie. But when you right. don't speak that language, it keeps it like an us versus them mentality. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, if you can't understand the person who's in front of you, yeah. they're, they're much less of a person, right? right? Yeah. yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So, you know, deciding to go into a field where it pays little, your life's on the line, the work is great. So I get the purpose and you can throw that in there. But also with no guarantee or even remote guarantee of hitting a level of success. What does right. it take to follow that route? Well, I had the advantage of starting before I was a journalist as a graduate student, and I wasn't making much money then either. So yeah, true. I didn't really realize, you know, what what it, yeah, at that point I think I was making like eight thousand dollars a year. So to go to eight to like fourteen was huge <laughs> for me. So to some degree, it was just you know low expectations are really useful. <laughs> Uh, and you know, but you know, and, and I was young and I was, had this high tolerance for risk, but I also knew that I wanted to tell stories that are meaningful to people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't go into journalism because you want to get rich. You, you go into it because you're fascinated and curious about the world and you want to, uh, you know, tell something deep And every one of the books and articles that I write, really the main question is what makes us human? What about this tells a story that's bigger than just that subject, but but something fundamental about our nature? And it doesn't matter what I've been studying, whether it was this organ trafficking stuff or a war zone or uh, you know, or cults or more recently this sort of meditative practice that, that lets you control your your um, you know unconscious bodily functions. It all boils down to why are we here? Mm. And that's the, that, you know, that's a question that, I, that I've always wanted to explore, maybe never answer, but like, you know, tr tr poke at it. Having that in mind is what could get you through maybe 10 years or eight years of toiling. I'm curious, did you have friends, close friends, know people who went into the straight, going into business 
and then you saw, wow, my expectations are really low. Did that ever happen? Well, I, I, I need to make another caveat. At the point, I was living in India as well. Right. Uh, so I was spending in rupees and earning few dollars, but they were dollars. So that made it more comfortable True. Uh, at that point. And I didn't move back to America till I had my first book contract. Mm. Uh, but do I have friends who made tons of money? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, weirdly, the friends who've made the most money have been in the creative industries. Really? Uh, you know, I went into, you know, two of my college one was a college roommate. One was sort of more of an acquaintance. Uh, have both gone on to be incredibly successful authors. One is John Green, you know, the author of Fault in Our Stars and, mm -hmm. and that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Ransom Riggs was actually my my roommate, my senior year in college. Wow. And he's he did Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and that whole um, series. They've done, you know, fantastically well. Wow. So I, I've I've I sort of had them as like maybe not models, but like you know the knowledge that that's possible. Uh, and, you know, I, I never bothered to ask my doctor friends how much money they made because I'm sure it would depress me. <laughs> well, you know, this is an interesting concept that I don't think I've ever talked about or thought of. Do you think that it's actually oversold how risky it is to go into whatever you want to call it, the arts or a less standard career path? Do you think it's actually not as risky? It just might take a little longer. I think, and so I've, I wrote this book, which was sort of a lark called The Quick and Dirty Guide to Freelance Writing. And, you know, a big part of my career has been, um, you know, on the side of my journalism, but talking about the business model of writing and how to think about writing and sort of these creative arts as a business. And I think what the problem is, is that so many people who go into these fields don't realize that the business model that you engage in is intrinsically important to the success of your artwork, you know, and, and, and they're, they're just like, Hey man, I just want to do art. I just want to write stories uh, and, and they're going to be great. And then people will read them and they'll be, they'll just love them so much. And they just think that success is like, um, you know, like it just finds them and will pick them up and deliver them there. But the truth is, is that you have to really think about marketing and the value of your work and, and how to get it into the hands of people. And then not only that, but how to monetize that. And there's tons of ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And there's no one right way. But but if you're not thinking about that from the very beginning, uh, what happens is, and I've seen this happen to a lot of freelance writers, is they'll start writing, they realize they're not making money, and then they end up in PR. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and, and because they, they realize that the money business plan was important and they don't know how it is and they hope that somebody else will give them the mm -hmm. business plan. And so it's a marketing agency usually. And uh, and for me, it's always been, I, I, you know, I, I need to, to find the way to make enough money to live. And I've always looked at money as time. Like I make enough money that I can survive this amount of time on the amount that I'm spending. And so I'm just sort of, I don't really think about the dollar amount as much as like, okay, I've got three months, I've got eight months and, and I've got a year and I'm sort of building up that sort of capital to, to survive. And if I, if I didn't have that, that mentality and also a real, you know, ability to negotiate contracts, because, you know, anytime you sell a story or a book to a company, um, it's not like they want to give you a great deal. Right. right? right. And, and like, and like, Oh, you, you, that 400 page contract you signed or they're not 400, they're like 50 or 60 page contracts. You know, every line in that is them taking value from you right. in some way or right. another. Yeah. And, and so I would actually read these contracts. I know it's revolutionary. That is. And then I'd be like, no, yes, no. And, and we would go through them. And, you know, I, I, I've, I, early on, I had this reputation of being a bit of an asshole. Um, but 
I'm a bit of an asshole who's not in PR. So. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I found you through your newest book, What Doesn't Kill Us. And mm-hmm. what I was mentioning to you before, and I said, we got to hit the record button, is this. We'll get into all this, right? It's the Wim Hof method. It's a lot of people have heard of Wim Hof or maybe even heard from him. But mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to necessarily have him on because I wanted the skeptic's view. Mm-hmm. And right. I liked the approach that you took that even Wim himself mentioned saying this guy, when I first met him, I thought is going to be a tough sell. How much did you believe you were going to be exposing this method as a scam when you went into it? I mean, about 50, 50. Oh, I'd really? Say. Okay. You know, like, like here's the thing. Wim Hof at that, at that point had done some incredible things. He had, he had scaled two thirds of the way Everest in shorts and no shirt. He had had some records for controlling his body in the ice. Uh, and uh, there had been some studies on him saying that his immune system looked really interesting. Uh, but there wasn't much more about him than that that was credible. And the thing that to me about Wim, which was so scary, was that he was saying that he could teach other people to do these things too. It wasn't just sort of a genetic thing that he had, but anyone could do it. They could learn it very quickly. And there's all these pictures of Wim, you know, sitting on like icebergs and mm-hmm. his skivvies. Mm-hmm. And I figured he was going to get people killed. And the reason why that was important to me is because I had just been, I was working on a book at that point called, uh, at that point it was called A Death on Diamond Mountain. I've re-released it under the title The Enlightenment Trap, where people pursuing intensive uh, spiritual awakenings, you know, enlightenment. Uh, and and oftentimes enlightenment gets paired with this idea of superpowers, whether it's levitating or telepathy or walking through walls or these sorts of things. And I, had, I was documenting cases after case after case of people who were pursuing these superhuman feats and then dying or ending up in mental asylums. Uh, and I wrote a whole book on this and, and I was, I, I looked at Wim, I was like, well, he's probably just another one of these dudes bilking people for money and, and going out after it, you know, that. Right. So I went in with the intention to debunk him, but also I, I believe in giving people a fair chance, right? Mm. I don't just go in there and say, there's no way you could be real because I don't know everything in the world and I'm going to, going to debunk you by going in and trying your method myself. Because I'm an immersive journalist. And I figured that I'm a smart enough guy that if if shit was going down and things were looking bad, I was going to get out. But I have to tell the story from the inside because I'm interested in the question of what is human? Who are we? Why are we doing this? And I, I needed to know the appeal um, internally. So I, I went to Poland. You know, I was living in Long Beach at that time. Uh, and that's in California. And, and then moved to, you know, I flew to Poland in the middle of the winter. Uh, and I, and, and, you know, I get off the plane and, and I see him and he's wearing this sort of like green pointy gnome hat, <laughs> makes him look like a garden gnome. He's got this big bulbous nose, ruddy skin. And I'm like, this is going to be easy. Yeah. Like, look at this guy. This guy's a madman. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and I didn't have super high hopes at that, at that point. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we, we get to his. You know, we we drive, I think, three or four hours from the airport. We get to this tiny village called uh, Prasheka, where he has this dilapidated farmhouse slash yoga retreat center. uh, And it's totally falling apart. And I stash my bag in this upstairs room and I look out the back window and there's this guy, not Wim, this American dude, tanned American guy in his underwear, standing in this 
Siberian-esque snowfield, throwing snow on himself and there's steam coming off his body. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, yeah. And you've uh, seen some crazy stuff. So at this point, you're like, wait a second. Yeah, totally. Like, I, and, and I was also like, I do not want to do that. Right. So, <laughs> and, and this is like, this is the other reason I was really excited to have you on. And we are going to get into that. But let me just tease people and then we'll come back to it. Sure. You, you say your spirit animal is the jellyfish. I could <laughs> not agree with that more. This is me. We're going to talk about that because when I read that, I said, okay, good. Maybe we're on the same page and maybe he can help me out. But there's another question I wanted to ask you before that, which was if at the end of this story, Mm-hmm. it did not end well. Do you feel right. like your book or the story itself would be worth as much? Um, you mean uh, the initial assignment that I took, which with Playboy or the book? Oh, good question. I would say that with Playboy, it could go either way. But with right. the book, mm-hmm. do, don't you think it'd be a lot harder to sell a book that was like, hey guys, here's all the stuff I did and it sucked <laughs> and nothing <laughs> happened, right? Yeah, well, I, I mean... So it was a slow building process, obviously, to get to from the Playboy article uh, that ran in, I don't know, 2013, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and the and the book, which came out uh, last year. Actually, no, early this year. And we're, we're talking. In I was going to say, depending on when it airs. <laughs> depending on when this airs. Yeah. Um, and what happened in the Playboy article is I did the Wim Hof method and lo and behold, it worked. And I was surprised. I was like, oh, my God, this is really interesting. All of a sudden, I'm climbing up this mountain in Poland in my underwear, and it's like two degrees Fahrenheit out, and I feel warm. And I was surprised and really interested in that. And mm-hmm. then over the the, the, the next six years, and I wrote another book, a different book, and then I got back into the Wim Hof method. And, uh, and I, I trained for months, and I was seeing all these things happen. Uh, and then ultimately – the end of the book is me climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro with Wim and a group of uh, you know, 20 odd other people. And we're trying to break a speed record uh, up to the top of the mountain. Um, uh, and it's sort of a weird one. It, it's, a, it, it's, it's basically ascent of Kilimanjaro without uh, acclimation. Right. Uh, and we, do, you know, usually it takes about three to five days to get to the summit and you know, Wim and I and one other guy busted up to the top of the uh, of of Kilimanjaro in 28 hours, which was very fast, and uh, not because it was a difficult hike, but because the altitude was so um, the the pressure was so low in the atmosphere that uh, you know usually people would die uh, at, if you if you moved at that rate. Actually, the Dutch Mountaineering Association predicted that we would all die. Really? So, I didn't know. They that. did. I don't remember. And that. so so us getting up there was actually this really cool, interesting feat. But to say that it ended up totally happy in Ultra Happy Land is not true because there's this big mutiny scene mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. as we get close to the top where I realize that Wim, well, in a way, he's this prophet character where he's opened up this this um, porthole into how our biology works that that does absolutely work. There, he's He can also be so solipsistically self-focused that he can be reckless and he can be a madman. And, and, and he does something on the top of the mountain uh, where I would say nine, probably 80%, 90% of the group mutinies on him. And is like, no, we're not going to go up with you. You're crazy. Hmm. And, and I'm like, well, shit, I got to write this book. Right, right. And, and I'm also like, I think I can do it. I'm just going to be really angry. So, so for a, a certain section of that, I, 
I'm like, I'm still going to follow you up. But I put on every piece of clothing I had in my backpack, mm. <laughs> which was like a, you know, I had like a puffy coat and some sort of like wind pants and some stuff. And I'd been, you know, mostly like shirtless and, you know, whatever going up and, and I'm following him up and I'm pissed at him because he's basically forcing us to move when the group was not ready to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's basically where the mutiny occurred. And, and I follow him up and, and I, I'm maybe another half an hour and, and I'm watching him and I watch him sort of slip up and trip. And I realize that, you know, I had maybe part of me was thinking, you know, Wim really is a special dude. And he's so, he, you know, he's so cool that, you know, being with him is, you know, inspiration or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I see him fall and I'm like, oh, he's just a, a like a fucked up dude, just like all of us are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then I realized that my mutiny of wearing all of these layers was also stupid in its own way because I didn't need them. It was just me being like, fuck you, whim. Right. And so then I start stripping down again. Uh, and, you know, I think that the, the, the takeaway and one of the problems with Wim Hof is that so many people look at him and they see these great feats and they're like, oh, my God, will you be my guru? Right. Will you be my perfect leader into this world? And Wim is not perfect. He's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who's hung out with him for more than, say, an hour knows that Wim is crazy. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, he has this sort of image in the media, uh, which, which, which sort of puts him on a pedestal. And to Wim's credit, he will often say, I am not your fucking guru. Right, right. You know, I am not that guy. But nonetheless, people keep on putting him on this pedestal. So part of the, the goal of this book, What Doesn't Kill Us, is to say, look, here is this portal. Here's something that is really cool. And, and Wim certainly opened up the world to this, this transformative technique. But the, the, the greatness of it is not in the personality of this person. It's in the, the work that you put into it. Right. And don't you think, though, that that I'm assuming you come across this in your work, that tends to be the norm in if there's Mm -hmm. a norm in new, creative, incredible breakthroughs or insights. It's a lot of madness, a little bit of brilliance and marketing. Sure. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great combo right there. A little (laughs) madness, a little truth, great, some great marketing. Yeah, that's that's. There's a business plan for you. I know. Well, and when I when I learned about how Wim came to be, what people always fall back to, myself included, is if it's not already known, it can't be real because we know everything. Mm -hmm. And so how can this method be legit and still not be super mainstream? Well, it's a. There's a lot of ways to answer this question. And, you know, one of the things about the Wim Hof method, you know, it's not just about resilience and being able to stand in the snow, right? That is the the sort of like the the flash of the method, right? The the, the really interesting things about it are that it has this impact on the immune system uh, where you can uh, essentially turn off autoimmune processes that are detrimental, things like rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease, just to name two, but there are many, where your body's attacking itself. And by giving your body this environmental stress, you essentially give your immune system something else to do so it's not attacking you. And this is the, and you know, there's a lot more detail to go into this on how that works. Um, And I wrote a book about it conveniently. But your question was really about why is this not going mainstream? And in one way, I can say it is sort of going mainstream. Yes, when I went yes. initially, there yeah. were like three people on that retreat in 2011. Now, the, you know, he's got 
tens of thousands of people who are doing the method. Just so to see this this method grow has been really fascinating to sort of follow on that journey. But then to talk about millions of people doing this stuff, we have a problem in the world with evidence, especially when it comes to medical stuff, you know, and and the scientific method is fantastic. You know, these gold standard placebo controlled trials with tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, when you look at like how, say, penicillin works, right? You had a control group who didn't get penicillin and you had the, the, the group that did take penicillin. And then the, 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 then you were able to, to watch the people who took it survive and the other people die. And you, you, you have this, this sort of very extensive trial. Well, well, as we have moved from penicillin, which was what, in the you know, 20s? Is that when that, that, that came out? Something like the the 20s, right? As we get now to like major big pharma situations, it takes between one and three billion dollars to get the sort of evidence that we want and we consider the gold standard. Um, This is because you go through phase one, two and three clinical trials. You do animal studies, you do um, uh, human uh, small, small group studies and you do large group studies. And to do that requires a lot of money and a lot of investment. And then also you need... Um, you know, a lot of like intellectual capital, you need journal articles, you need all of this institutional stuff, which is actually not the scientific method. That's actually an economic model. And then you look at one thing like diabetes, does this drug help insulin resistance and then, and then improve outcomes? That's the question. And then, so you go really deep, but the Wim Hof method is not asking about one acute small little thing. It's saying you do this stuff, you expose yourself to extreme stress and control yourself in that environment, and then your general health gets better. So you could never fund a, a study for everything that that it seems like Wim Hof method could do. There's just not the economic output for it. Because when you do the drug, you know, you, you invested $3 billion, you expect to make at least $4 billion <laughs> right, right? Right, right. at the end of that. And there's no billions of dollars to be made with ice water and breathing techniques. It's just, mm. it's just, it's just not there. So, you know, in some ways, I mean, there is science behind the Wim Hof method. There are, there have been studies at universities at the small sort of group level, 20 participants sort of thing that look amazing. And, and, and the results seem to indicate something much bigger than, than what we have. But we will never get in the in the current world we live in. We will never get the sort of evidence that we 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 accept at that big pharma level. Yeah, uh, just because it, it it just will never happen. Uh, wow, that's really insightful. I mean, you've probably answered the question before, but if they're the ones saying, "Hey, here's the method that has to be followed to get doctor approval, doctor recommendation," mm-hmm. and they're the ones that control that method, mm-hmm. will fund that, and then they won't do it for things that won't make them money. But I just have never looked at it from that perspective. Well, and it doesn't need to be that way. That, you know, the thing is, is that that's just the way we have, we have created the scientific credibility standards of right. the present age. Right, and right. It, it hasn't always been like that. Science is really about an inquiry about looking at objective reality and, and testing it and coming up with a hypothesis and seeing where it, where it comes out, uh, but clinical outcomes are sort of a different thing, right? And you're not all, always, and you know, the really weird thing about clinical outcomes is it's not just, they don't say like, is this person healthy and are they healthier later or are they feeling good? What they'll look at as our markers at a sort of a sub-level or do you have better insulin resistance, you know, in, in this in this set of protocols. And 
insulin resistance, while indicative of how you might feel, is not as a proxy for that. Like personally, I don't care what my insulin's doing as right. long as I feel okay. Right. right? right. Like, like, you know, I could have insulin, you know, no resistance you know, or a hundred percent resistance. Mm-hmm. But if my, everything else was fine, then who cares about that marker? Mm-hmm. And so science, the medical science of right now is looking at these very sort of micro things and trying to make a proxy for how the human health works. Whereas the, the, this whole wellness movement, not just the Wim Hof method, but the wellness movement in general, which of course has a lot of hucksters in it, yeah. but also has some very real people in it too, right? We're, we're, they're looking at like, how do you feel? Like how, how, how are you able to, to act in the world, right? How, what, what are you able to do it? And, and, and those are fundamentally different qualitative questions than the questions we ask when we're making a pharmaceutical. Yeah. You know, at the end, you kind of talk about when you've added this regimen into your life, right. the results, and you do it via some really great science and you go see your buddy. But the descriptor isn't necessarily about how you feel, right? Like the science is more about mm-hmm. what you metabolize, you know, sugars versus fats and things like that. Mm-hmm. But how did you feel? Like, how do you think it impacted your quality of life? Really well. I would say that it makes me, in general, more resilient and less stressed out about mm. things. Mm. Because, you know, one of the things you do every day, there, you know, the method has two parts, right? There's this breathing protocol, and then there's a, a you know, cold uh, exposure protocol, which, which turns out to be like a cold shower or... Um, hyperventilating and then holding your breath and hyperventilating and hold your breath. And and then you you hold your breath with empty lungs uh, for three minutes at a time after about three reps. That's the really nutshell version of what the method is. Uh, What you're doing is you're giving yourself controlled stress in both of these cases. When it's cold water on you, your instinct is to sort of clench up and uh, you know, you know that feeling of it's the worst. And and what you do, it's instead of clenching up, you relax. You tell your body, okay, this is a stressful stimulus. In this stimulus, I'm going to be okay. And you just will yourself to relax. And you don't shiver. You don't clench. And you let your body um, heat itself using a different process than the clenching. The clenching is like physical muscle contraction um, that, that does actually raise your body temperature. Um, but if you relax, what, what will happen is your body will switch to a metabolic program and start burning fat, or, or actually initially it will be sugars, but it'll move over to fat very quickly to heat yourself. Uh, and you're just training yourself to control yourself in this environment. And, and once you get good at that, what happens is that you can train yourself to relax in all sorts of situations or you can look at 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 something that should make you fearful and realize that 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 fear is a sensation that happens from the inside first right it's it's you looking at something and 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 anticipating um a pain or or you know a negative outcome but that has not occurred right and 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 then if you can control yourself in this environment, you can find that you have m- much more capability to deal with everyday things. Um, also, when you jump out of a cold shower, you've ramped up your adrenaline and your cortisol, which are hugely great feel-good hormones, and you usually feel great after that. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Support for today's show comes from Health IQ. Health IQ believes that the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. So they use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 
So why Health IQ, you may ask? 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Like saving money for being a good driver, Health IQ gets you lower rates on life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. After all, physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, 56% lower risk of heart disease, and 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain inactive. Now that we've got your attention, here's what you have to do. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com SPP or mention the promo code SPP when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Again, that's healthiq.com SPP to get your free quote. And now back to the episode. First of all, cortisol is a bad thing, right? According to everyone, myself included, because I've dealt with anxiety issues in the past. And so I have spent a decade of my life trying to minimize cortisol. Everything I know about cortisol talks about its inflammatory properties. Tell me why I've been wrong. Our bodies produce stuff of, of various sorts. And we produce stuff because evolutionarily we needed that stuff in certain situations. And what the way I view it, and I'm not an expert on uh, the endocrine system. Right. This is not my my major skill. And and there's a lot written on cortisol that I just do not understand. Sure, sure. But but I will say is that we engage cortisol and adrenaline are both part. They both get released when you you trigger your fight or flight responses, which is your sympathetic nervous system. And you have your parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest. And, and then you have your sympathetic, which is like the, oh, my God, I saw a tiger. What am I going to do uh, situation? And cortisol, you know, when you release a lot of it, 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 it's indicative of this sympathetic system getting launched. But you might be saying, hey, I want to reduce my cortisol all the time. And, 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 and that's because the vast majority of humans on earth today do not run into situations that need that adrenaline cortisol boost to make them run faster and fight tigers better Mm -hmm. than they would normally. It's because we are engaging this sympathetic response, which requires a physical activity to really be used correctly. Um, We're using that to mull over our 401ks. We're using that to to be like, oh, is my retirement funded enough? Is do do I have my health insurance or or uh, you know who am I going to go to dinner with with and and does that guy really like me? We're, we we're 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 engaging these stress hormones without the physiological response that was that was there initially because there was no caveman ever wondering about how he should fill out this tax form correctly and if the IRS would go after him. That's not where we evolve. But we're, we're, we're now misapplying evolutionary systems to intellectual endeavors that, you know, we never had before. And, and this is why I think you think cortisol shouldn't be there because you have a, a, a life that doesn't require it mm-hmm. and, and is not used to it. And you know, evolutionarily, where we've come from, we were always having various inputs. And with the with the Wim Hof method, I talk about temperature, right? We we live mostly at a constant seventy two degrees all year round, scorching hot summer outside, or 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 you know frigid winter. We we have a, a temperature systems in our houses to keep us at this sort of static uh, jellyfish like um, place, which is why my 
spirit animal. jellyfish right? <laughs> and, and we're all like okay we don't want to put any extra work in so we're not giving ourselves any variations the, the Wim Hof method is like no fuck that we do need variation and here I'm gonna give you a variation temperature and you're gonna control yourself even though it, there's this there's there's this swing and then lo and behold very quickly you adapt and like hey this is fine and it's the same thing with um yeah uh you know we don't see tigers we don't see you know real danger on occasion and that's good because none of us actually want to get hurt but evolutionarily we did encounter dangers we did have things where we had to like move quickly and those things were standard uh in 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 our experiential profile and so we need to we what what we need to do is we need to give ourselves a varied experience of the world if we want to have health. Yeah, you know, we have had on the show, actually, one of the more downloaded episodes was not too long ago, a guy named Doug Hench who talks about resilience and in a really great way. And it's been downloaded because of his clarity and conciseness around that. But I think that's also representative of we talk about resilience very often today in terms mm -hmm. of mental fortitude, which is necessary. However... Right. What this is doing and what your book highlighted to me and the Wim Hof method is the uh, the other side of resilience, which is physical resilience, which we have lost. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and here's why I chose your book. I read the intro portion of it. And look, I hate cold, like more mm -hmm. than anyone, actually, more than people I know. So this isn't just the average hate. This is a despise. This is a won't go in cold water house is set super warm. So I feel like that is my physiology, right? And I and I hate that aspect did, about me. Did you did you see the part in my book where I talk about people's reaction to the cold? Which, where and, and there's a line in there and I can't quote it verbatim right now, but which is that everyone says that they are especially unable oh, yeah. to deal with cold. Right, right. You know <laughs> there's, what? There's so I read that part and I said, no, 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 but you don't know me. I, that's, how I, that's how I felt. But what I love is when you talk about the spirit animal of the jellyfish, I felt like, okay, maybe him and I are similar, right? right? Do you truly believe, truly, that I, someone as jellyfish, if not more than you, could do this? Yeah, absolutely. Could go lay in the snow. It's my yeah. nemesis. Yeah, that's why. So, so if something is this sort of true nemesis to you, mm -hmm. but is not deadly. And I think that not deadly is important. Don't go chase a tiger. Do not punch a tiger. It is a bad idea. Uh, but, you know, there's no way you lying down in the snow, you know, and it's not like negative 30 out. Right. You know, if, right. if it's like, if it's like 20 degrees outside, there is no way that you lying out in the snow for 10 minutes is going to kill you. It's right. just not going to happen. And what we have is we have this this brain that encodes very early in our life our reaction to environmental stimulus. It goes into our, our limbic system and then our paralimbic system, and we encode sensation with the emotional value uh, that uh, at the time that we first experience it. Uh, and so the first time you ever walked outside, that you remember this, right, you experienced it as pain. And then you said, well, that's pain. and Forget that. I never want to feel pain because pain is bad. Mm -hmm. But it's not that bad, right? It, 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 it's the actual experience of it is just a sensation. Uh, it's not damage. It's not death. But your but your your body is indicating that no, that's the path to death. But it's not. It's a, it's a path to exciting your nervous system, um, to to ramping up resilience against a stress, and you're going to come away stronger for it. I have no doubt that if you started slowly. 
right? Doing, um, you know, get your hot shower, wash off, and then do the hardest thing a human has ever done in the history of the planet. Turn it cold. Turn, turn it cold. Yeah. And sit there for 30 seconds. Promise you you're not going to die. No one has ever died from that. <laughs> okay. But, but you're going to trigger those responses of, de- of death of the fear of death and you're going to relax into it and you're going to be fine and you're going to feel better the whole day because of it. All right. So this is, this is the bread and butter of this interview. I either willingly or unwillingly at times have been in a warm shower, which I take like scalding hot showers and they turn icy. Whether somebody flushes the toilet, I miss, I turn the thing the wrong way. And and in my feeble, unresilient brain, Mm -hmm. I then feel like it ruined my day because now I'm going to be cold. I'm going to get out of the shower Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be cold. I'm going to stand and like try and wrap up in nine towels. And I, I literally go, okay, because I did that, I'm more bitter about just my day. Why, why not never experience that and just go on being happy? You know what I mean? And as I say it, I realize the insanity there, but I know you you felt the same thing, right? Go for it. If you want to be a jellyfish, we have a perfect <laughs> technological environment to keep you in your jellyfish state forever. And, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to live the same way that that most of the, the America lives. Yeah. So, uh, so what's you, the argument you can do against it. it? Yeah, go ahead. You can, you can do it. <laughs> Should you do it is right. another question, right? Should you just accept the 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 unquestioned things about our technological environment where other people said that this was good, right? People selling HVAC systems. Um, you know, before you were born, they were selling HVAC systems. They probably sold, they sold them to your parents and your grandparents. And, and you know, it has been bequeathed to you that that is just the way we live. You know, that this is the way, the way it is. But HVAC systems have only been around for what? 100 years. Right. Before that, there was nothing like that. And although it's more comfortable to live with technology meeting our every biological need, especially in the moment, over the long term, it's not healthy. Over the long term, you're turning off bodily processes that you do have evolutionarily, and you're letting them atrophy and go away. And then you're then you're dependent on this technology to keep you happy. And you know, when you say that you you went into this cold and then you involuntarily, uh, sorry, you went into this shower, it turned cold and it was involuntary and then it ruined your day. That does not surprise me hmm. because you're not being resilient. You're not saying, okay, yeah, I can do this. This is something that I can do because intention is very, very important. Hmm. You know, it, 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 you're, you're, if you just let things happen to you and you and you allow your body's unconscious responses to rule the day, uh, then your, your, your unconscious is saying cold is bad. Now my whole day is bad. But if instead you take control of that and you say, look, there's this cold and I can do this. And, and here's the, here's the spooky trick that I did on Kilimanjaro. And also um, while running this, uh, I ran this obstacle course race called the tough guy, uh, which is the coldest obstacle course race in the world Hmm. in, or at least it was at that time. Uh, in England, uh, where everyone else is in neoprene, you know, they're, they're, they're running, running it in wetsuits. We're wow. going through water and all these obstacles. I ran it in a bathing suit and a hat. And, wow. and what I did is I, you know, I, when you get on the starting line, it sucks, man. I'm like, oh man, this is cold. I do not like this. Right. Mm. And then we started running and I said, okay, no, this cold, that sensation coming into my skin is not cold. It is the joy of running this race. 
And, 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 and it's just something I told myself. Hmm. That sensation is joy. And then all of a sudden, that mental trick changed my entire experience of that event. I was both warm. There's all these photos of me, you know, where I had this just giant smile on my face hmm. uh, next to a guy in a wetsuit. <laughs> and, and, and it's just that, that, you know, I just said, look, it's not that bad. I can do this. And then my body spookily responded. And, you know, I'm a slow runner. I'm still not a, a terrible runner. I think it took me three hours to finish that race. It was freezing. <laughs> Uh, and, and, but I was totally resilient because I, I, it felt like my skin was armor. It was really strange. And it, it's partially because I had conditioning before I got them, but also this mental trick to say, look, I can do it. You can do it. It's, it's our biology. And those people in the neoprene are wearing that neoprene, not because they need it, but because they feel that they want it and they're scared. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite parts of your book and of this story is you talk about skin as armor. You talk yeah. about not succumbing to that voice in our in our head that tells us we're weak. And what it changed for me, and this episode's doing the same, I am in the middle of watching the show Vikings. Have you ever seen that? Uh no, I haven't. So you probably you're probably one of those people more evolved than me. You don't watch a lot of TV. But it's an <laughs> amazing show. It's like Game of Thrones, and yeah. they're always cold because they're Vikings, right? Yeah. And right. um, and I kind of watch it, and I I think to myself, I talk to my dad about this a lot in Game of Thrones as well. Like, man, their life must have sucked. But what I'm wondering, do you actually think that because that was the norm to them, it was no different than us in our vacuum sealed environments? Like when they were laying in the snow and obviously experiencing cold, because right. they didn't know any better, did they just go, "No, I'm 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 fine," even though I'm covered in snow, I'm freezing, I'm yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, they were fine. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I tell this story in, in the book about uh, the, you know, the pilgrims. When the pilgrims landed in North America, 1620, I believe, uh, they didn't see anybody. They landed in Cape Cod, basically, in the middle of the winter, very cold. Uh, and they don't see anyone for three months. And then this dude in March <laughs> walks up to their camp. And they're, they, you know, they bought their stone huts and their big buckled hats and their big coats. And this dude walks up to their camp and weirdly in English, he says to them, welcome, welcome, Englishman, which is weird how we knew English, but that's a story for a different podcast. <laughs> um, his name is Samoset and he showed up wearing nothing but a loincloth in the middle of the winter. And the pilgrims were like, oh my God, you're going to freeze to death. And they gave him a coat. <laughs> the first thing they did was gave him a coat. And he was like, cool, thanks for the coat, man. Um, but he was totally fine in this loincloth. And if you just look up Samoset, S-A-M-O-S-E-T, into Google, um, you will find all these photo, uh, these um, lithographs of oh, his outfit at that time. And the thing was that the Algonquin Indians at that time, the Algonquin and the Wampanoag, would put their kids in the snow for 15 minutes a day uh, as children and then bring them back into their houses that were nice and warm. And, and that exposure as a young child gave them lifelong cold resilience uh, where, you know, they could just walk around in the winter and be totally fine in their loincloth. It was, it was just how it was. Um, Darwin saw the same thing when he was going around the, the, the um, Tierra del Fuego in, in the Beagle where these, uh, you know, people in canoes wearing just loincloths were in this like incredibly hostile environment, pretty close to the South Pole. And it's just an ability that humans have and that we have lost. And, and it's, it's 
it's not like they don't know any, you said you use the words that they don't know any better, mm. or maybe the thing is that we don't know what we are capable of. We don't know that what that comfort also relies on stress and that if you give yourself stress, that means that expands your resilience ability so that you're now comfortable between 50 and a hundred degrees instead of 71 and 74 degrees. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it's just like, widening that band of resilience. It doesn't make you immune to the elements. I'm sure that Samoset could have died of hypothermia in certain circumstances, but he was a hell of a lot more prepared to, to exist in a, in a larger band, a wider band of comfort and sort of resilience than, than the pilgrims. And, and it's, it's different cultural traditions, different approaches to the world. Um, but even the pilgrims, we're probably a hell of a lot more resilient than you are. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, in- uh, I, I looked at this old medical book um, while doing this research uh, about, and, and he was talking about the cold and how to use the cold in like a, a sort of medieval way to make yourself warm uh, and, and whatever. Uh, but one of the most interesting passages was he, where, where he said, you know, we're, our, our homeostasis, our static point where we feel totally comfortable is 62 degrees in our houses. And that's where, what warm is. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting because the average American at 72 degrees. And, and in the course of 100 odd years or 150 years, what our comfort point is where we're totally comfortable has risen by about 13 degrees. That does not surprise me. It actually makes me feel totally like a, a jellyfish of 2017. <laughs> I mean, you know, even mine, I feel like has risen now that I have my own house and I have a Nest thermostat I can control right now. I go, ooh, my feet are chilly. Let's go up to 74. Oh, man, you wimp. <laughs> I'm such a wimp. But but please tell me you were there at one point, right? Like I can sure. get there. Yeah, it's it's super easy. And and the thing is that, you know, these are evolutionary abilities and, and it's it, uh, and and this resilience actually happens on a seasonal basis. The underlying mechanisms, you build up this stuff called brown fat, um, which is one of the metabolic tissues that, that, that sucks white fat out of your body and burns it for heat energy. Um, historically, the, that it, we would lose this um, tissue in the summer when we didn't need it, and we would gain it in the winter. And, and it's an evolutionary process, and because uh, evolution is a very violent process, and you are the descendant of an evolutionary winner, uh, the, the people who were like, yeah, I guess I got used to that snowstorm in like a year, uh, they all died and they didn't pass on their genes. So you have these very quick adapting genes. And if you just started taking cold showers now, in a week, you would have a seriously different um, set of resilience pro- um, factors than you do now yeah. uh, because it's very, very fast. Because if it wasn't fast, we, we you would be dead. And, and I actually want to highlight that for people listening because this – was a thought I had. I thought, look, if it's this evolution, when we use the term evolution, we tend to think it's a long, long time. So I was thinking, well, look, if we evolved to have it and now we have devolved to not have it, how can I get it back in a week? But really what you're saying is, look, it's there in us basically lying dormant and we can just essentially turn it on because it evolved over so long. We haven't lost it. We've just lost the ability to use it. Right. And that's why the, the book's subtitle is how freezing water, extreme altitude and environmental conditioning will renew mm-hmm. our lost evolutionary strength. It's mm-hmm. not it's not located. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. It, it's, it's, it's we're just restoring something that's there. And because, you know, we, we talk about nature and nurture. Right. You know, nature is, I guess, what, what the genetic information passed down and nurture is the, how, how the environment shapes us. And if we have the environment of a 
desk office with a fluorescent lighting over us, we have a body that adapts to fluorescent lighting and desk life. Mm -hmm. But if you have, if you, if you put your body in an environment of, of mild stress and uh, what we would think of as being uncomfortable, then you get a body that can then result, you know, reflects that, Mm -hmm. that stimulus that's coming in. And then you get a body, which is happens to be a body that we find better. Right. We, we, we don't think that the, the big fat butt of sitting in your desk chair all the time and, you know, totally pale skin. <laughs> we don't we don't value that as necessarily the, the most uh, the ideal physical type. Right. right. <laughs> we, we value the type that can be like, oh, we can do a lot of stuff. We can, you know, I don't know, run fast or whatever. Yeah. You know? And it, it really is about putting yourself in those situations that, that give you the body that you that you want. And and it's not just about aesthetics. Aesthetics are actually very silly. Mm-hmm. It's about a, a capability and resilience. And and interestingly enough, oftentimes the aesthetics will follow uh, that, mm. you know, you, you will get tighter in very, in the places that, that you, <laughs> that you, you want, you, that, that you, that you want. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I have been on a steady health incline since I started this method six years ago. Uh, you know, I, it, it's just, I realize that the environment is important and, and, and we are reflections of it. And, you know, we used to think there were two pillars of human health, right? It's the food you eat and the stuff you do with your body to um, keep it trim and fit, how you process those calories. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's been the model of human health in America for, you know, as long as I can remember. Right. What the Wim Hof method shows me is there's a third pillar. And the third pillar is the environment that you inhabit. And that is also giving signals to your body all the time about what it needs to do, what it needs to prepare to do. And if you don't give it varied stimulus, it's like, well, fine, I guess I'm never going to have to do anything. So why would I expend the energy to be anything else? Right. And here's another thing is, is sensations are very important. How you feel, those are, are, those are signals about how you should act in the world. And that feeling of chilly, of what, what you are, of cold, right? That, that, that sensation doesn't need to be a negative sensation. It can be a positive one. But what that sensation is of, is of your metabolism working. It, it, it's, it's that feeling chilly is like that passive sucking fat from your body and then using it. And we interpret it as uncomfortable, really just because we do like it, you can interpret that sensation in a many different ways, but we've always told ourselves that it's bad. But if you say that being a little chilly is actually a good sensation, your whole perspective changes. Right. Wow. Scott, this has been such a great conversation and I was really looking forward to it. We've, we mentioned it a few times. The book itself is what doesn't kill us, how freezing water, extreme altitude and environmental conditioning will renew our lost evolutionary strength by the way, the longest subtitle ever, but what doesn't kill <laughs> yeah. us. Okay. And as I said to you before hitting the record button, I read a lot of books. I finish very few and yours was one I finished. And that's, and that's awesome. just, a, yeah. And, and it's a testament guys. And I, I want to say this because some people come on the show and want to pitch stuff and all this. And most people by and large are very giving, but we haven't really talked about the story of this book. We've talked about what it's based on. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that because you can get the story in the book. So go buy the book. But you go to Poland. You submit yourself to Wims, this guy who I'll explain in the intro, to his experience. And you tell the story. And then, and I know listeners love this. They love learning. It's curiosity. You talk about this evolution, the, bi- the biology of our body, 
how it changes. You get scientific. You talk about metabolism and carbohydrates and autoimmune. Just really well done. It shows 15 years in this space. I am really more excited now about the next things that come out, especially this thing on, I don't know if I can say it, what you're working on next. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, yeah, let's go, let's go tell them. I'll just tease them, right? Ayahuasca, (laughs) which I actually interviewed this interview, never saw the light of day. I interviewed a guy who wrote a book. He's, he was like supposed to be the foremost expert on DMT. I think it was, is that right? Mm -hmm. DMT. This was like, yeah. And, uh, he sounded cuckoo. And so I didn't, I didn't air it like, Mm -hmm. yeah. But anyways, got me interested in ayahuasca. Can't wait to see that. I would like to end this episode on two things. One. Oh, wait, one thing. Yeah. Also, if you don't like reading books, which I totally get, <laughs> if there's an audio book that you can listen to, and then it would be me reading it to you oh. as you sit in a nice bath, preferably. Uh, so <laughs> you, you can get it that way, too, if, if you're not, not, not the, the nose in pages sort of person. Well, here's what I would like to end it with. One is where do we go to follow Scott to learn more? Yeah. Um, so my, uh, I have a Facebook author page, go follow that or Twitter. It's S G Carney or Instagram also S G Carney. And, uh, yeah, all the places you might find, there's even a website called scottcarney.com. If you can remember that. And, uh, there's mailing list. all the normal internet authory stuff. I got it. Okay. You could just go find me on Google. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to that. We'll obviously link to the book. The other thing is, For those that are really interested in this, there's a lot of places, right? You can buy the course, a whim, you can do all this. Right. What do you think, having gone through it all from a jellyfish to a a stone cold ice man? Right. (laughs) How does the average person integrate this into their lives more than just the cold shower? But like, what's a habit I can form? Because I'm going to do this. So the... The Wim Hof method is it's really there is this 10 week course that they have um, that that's on Wim's website that you can totally do. Um, I think there's a coupon in my ebook too to get a discount on it. But more importantly, and, and you don't really even need to buy my book, honestly, or or do anything extra <laughs> other than uh, realize that the environment is important and you need to pay attention to the autonomic the unconscious responses that your body has in these environments. And there's a 15 minute breathing protocol, uh, which I outline in the book, but you can also find like online in all sorts of places. If you Google Wim Hof breathing method, uh, where it's essentially controlled hyperventilation. Uh, so it sounds a little like this for 30 breaths. And then you end on an exhale and then you hold your breath. And then, uh, and, and the first time, first round, I'll hold my breath for about a minute. Uh, and then you repeat it. And this, you do this lying down. You don't do the standing up. You do this lying down, maybe sitting down, but I think lying down is best. I, I do it even before I even get out of bed in the wow, morning. Wow, wow. Okay. And, and preferably before you eat, because when you eat all this stuff's in your stomach and it makes it a little harder. Uh, so you, you do that. And the first time you, you hold your breath for a minute and then, then you, then you start another round of breathing, 30 breaths, and then you, uh, then I hold my, uh, you exhale and then hold, and then hold your breath for two minutes, or this is what I do. People's own, um, timings may be different. And then the third time I'll hold my breath for three minutes. And then at the, and then I do one more round of breathing and then you exhale and you start doing push-ups. 
And the weird thing about this is that when I first did this, I could do 20 push-ups. I was your, you know, whatever. That's where I was physically. Mm -hmm. The first time I did this, uh, I did three or four rounds of breathing and I did push-ups with no air in my lungs and not breathing. And uh, I did 40. So I wow. doubled the amount of push-ups wow. I have. And and it, it just, it's it's a way to integrate controlled stress because you're trying to delay that gasp reflex. Uh, and there's a whole, the, the biochemistry you can, you can look at in my book on how it all works. Uh, but you're, you're delaying that gas point and you're seeding a certain amount of control from your autonomic processes to your conscious processes when you do this. Uh, so that's, that's a 15 minute program. Do that every morning. And then when you shower, you can start off warm. That's fine. And at the end, do a minimum of 30 seconds uh, on the absolute coldest setting. Um, but I would suggest a minute and a half would be a good thing. And what you're trying to do is relax in this environment and, and, and not tense up. Don't scream. Don't, you know, be, curse <laughs> Scott Carney. Um, uh, uh, just be present and then realize it's not that bad. And, and that's very critical because if you do tense up and you fight that whole experience, you're not going to get the benefits mm. uh, because you're not pushing uh, yourself into a new mental territory. And you, then see how you are in, in, that day and do this for a week. You know, don't buy anything. Just do that for a week mm -hmm. and, and see how it makes you feel. And I, I you know. I want to say I guarantee you, but who knows yeah. how people will respond. <laughs> I experienced something great doing that, and I still do it to this day. Scott, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks cool. for taking the time out to be on the show. Thanks, man. Take All right. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back, and Happy New Year. Happy 2018. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Carney. Scott's book, What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And if you decide to purchase Scott's book through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you and it greatly supports the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're interested in signing up for the newsletter, which Chris and I promise we will get better at sending emails, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter there. If you're already signed up, you might have seen the email we sent out requesting questions for our special holiday podcast, which we are still in the process of editing because we had so much fun recording it. it took us about three hours. So we want to get that down to something listenable, but it was an absolute blast. It was a great way to bring in 2018. All right, that's it for us this week. As always, we've got some great stuff coming up. So make sure you stay tuned and we'll see you all next episode. <laughs>